This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rob Coleman, who is the primary author on the GOG 213 trial that has just been recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, evaluating the role of uh, secondary cytoreductive surgery in patients with platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. Um, certainly, this is absolutely a, a pleasure to speak with you, Rob, here. Uh, it's good to be here. This is actually going to be the last uh, uh, podcast of the year 2019. So it is absolutely a, a pleasure and honor to have this topic uh, to discuss. Uh, earlier in the year, we have previously talked about um, overall uh, secondary tidal reduction in, in ovarian cancer. And we had alluded to some of the details of GOG 213, mm -hmm. but um, obviously the study was not published at that time. So ideally what we want to do, and, and certainly let me warn the, the audience that most likely this podcast is going <laughs> to extend beyond the, the usual 20 minutes. Um, but I think that this is definitely a topic that we're all interested in, in uh, hearing about. Um, so um, let's start, uh, Rob, by um, just uh, again welcoming you and uh, wanted to see if you can just briefly discuss the, the trial design um, and, uh, and some of the pr uh, primary endpoints uh, as it pertains to overall survival um, and, uh, and then uh, also provide your, your points with regards to not uh, using disease-free survival as a primary endpoint for the study. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be able to uh, have the opportunity to speak about the trial. There's uh, obviously a lot of dialogue happening these days, uh, trying to evaluate, you know, uh, tackle surgical questions. And I'm, I'm grateful to the NCI for their uh, sponsorship of the trial so that we could actually address this question. So I think that the, um, you know, kind of a primary um, point in the trial uh, history was that we felt that an intervention such as surgery would need to, to uh, look at overall survival, its impact on overall survival, because ultimately most people feel that that is the gold standard for an endpoint on a, on a, on a trial that's involving an invasive procedure. Um, we also, we were concerned um, that we wanted to capture the, all of the potential uh, impacts to therapy that might be subsequent to the first adjuvant therapy um, following surgery. And so um, the, uh, interestingly, the trial itself was set up to, on the chemotherapy side as well to address overall survival as the primary endpoint. Uh, fortunately, we have one additional trial, the desktop three, which is designed in a very similar way, which is asking the same question and using the same primary endpoint. So, um, Rob, with regards to one of the first questions, obviously, and, I, and I'm going to ask a lot of these questions that may come up in, um, in, in discussions and debates. And, uh, and actually, I posed uh, a, a, uh, an invitation on social media for um, anyone to uh, actually submit their questions to you. Mm -hmm. So starting with, uh, with the first one, you know, certainly there's an issue and clarification whether the trial completed its intended accrual and whether you had enough events to answer the primary objective of this study. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a misconception about uh, um, releasing data early as opposed to completing accrual. So the trial definitely um, finished all of its intended accrual. The, um, uh, and of course, as any phase three, uh, it's monitored by a data safety monitoring board. And um, in the planned interim look for efficacy, 
Um, the we were notified by the DSMB after the 50% of the events, which is death, uh, had it been um, recorded. We um, we were notified that they wanted to the DSMB wanted to evaluate six more months of accrual data, or excuse me, of uh, event data to see whether or not the trends they were seeing at the early look were were persistent. So what they did is uh, after a six-month further look, they found that it confirmed their earlier suspicions that the trial itself, the way that the events were occurring, that the statistical likelihood that the trial would turn positive, in other words, meet its primary endpoint of showing superiority of surgery, was about 0.1%. And they said that because of that, it was acceptable or they recommended that we release the data based on 60% of the events that were um, intended to be to reviewed. So what they were essentially saying is that with all the patients accrued, that with 60% of the death events, that the likelihood that this trial would be changed by the additional 40% uh, of the events that were anticipated was very, very low. And so for the manuscript, though, so we released those data, as, as everybody knows, we published, we presented the primary endpoint at ASCO in 2018, and we updated the data uh, from the safety standpoint um, in IGCS. But as for in preparation for the publication, we actually did another data lock. So we looked at now April 2019 with about 80% of the events of the 100 that 100 percent um, events, 80% of that um, of those events, we updated the data. And if anything, it actually showed even more. It just reinforced what we'd already seen before. So I think that the D DSMB was appropriate in their recommendation. Um, it, it proving to be true. We'll continue to monitor the events as they come in. But the um, uh, that's what's in the paper is actually a fairly mature analysis for OS. So, Rob, one of the other um, arguments that has come in is the issue that the, perhaps the study took too long to complete and that this might have impacted the, the results of the study, you know, particularly given the, the changing options for consolidation therapies and therapies given at the time of recurrence. So what, what are your thoughts with regards to this comment? Well, I think that, um, you know, most people will understand that doing a surgical trial um, is a trial that does take time. Um, these are, you know, even, even though the trial is randomized, there is inherent uh, investigator bias as to who they think are good candidates for randomization. So um, the accruals came in slower than, than the chemotherapy, but part of that was also because the eligibility criteria for participating on the surgical randomization was that the patients could achieve a complete uh, gross resection. So if you think about the pool of patients that are coming in with recurrent disease, there's obviously a, it's a relatively small subgroup that come in with very isolated disease or a disease that's felt to be amenable to a complete gross resection. So that's, so the, just that fact alone is why the, it, it um, you know, would take longer than you'd expect for a chemotherapy, um, you know, randomization. But I do think that, um, that um, that duration of time for uh, for this kind of study does bring into the relevance of adjuvant therapy, and I think that what we've seen now over the last uh, really only about five years is that there has been multiple new approvals uh, for drugs that are given to patients that have platinum sensitive recurrent disease. Probably the most prominent of which is the PARP inhibitors, which many of these patients who are still alive you know, may be experiencing um, uh, uh, as part of their treatment options as considered standard of care. Now, I'll just remind everybody that the, um, that the primary, the first analysis of GOG-213, the, the chemotherapy objective, was assessing the role of bevacizumab added to chemotherapy. 
and basically showed, as it did in Oceans, which was looking at it um, added to gemcitabine and carboplatinum, that it improved the progression-free survival. And then GOG-213 actually increased overall survival. So I think that the standard had migrated uh, during the conduct of the trial. Um, but interestingly, when you look at the patients who went on the surgical objective, over 80% of those patients actually um, uh, received uh, bevacizumab as part of their standard care on both arms. So, so what we're talking about is that the group of patients that are on GOD-213 under the New England Journal of Medicine paper only includes a small f- number of patients who were not randomized to the bevacizumab as, the, as part of that initial um, in, uh, participation in the trial, which involved both a chemotherapy randomization and a surgical randomization. So I think that this is probably one of the major um, drivers uh, that we'll see in this particular trial is that the adjuvant therapy was really what we would consider standard of care today. Um, and it was, a, and it was a, used in over 80% of the patients that participated on the surgical arm. So Rob, actually that, that brings up a, a good point to actually bring in the question that came in through social media uh, with regards to the um, the sponsorship of the trial. And mm-hmm. of course, obviously, surgical trials today are exceedingly difficult to conduct as there's not as much uh, industry support as there is for therapeutics trials. Um, so one, one of the uh, one of the points or criticisms that was raised was, well, you know, of course, it's not going to show a difference because this was a study that was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. Can you can you uh, provide your, your thoughts on that? <laughs> Um, well, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how the pharmaceutical sponsor made surgery different um, between the arms. But I, what I would say is that this is actually this trial was actually sponsored by NCI. Um, that's why we're so we did this through the GOG. Um, it was um, bevacizumab was provided to the NCI under a, um, a, a contra- research contract called a CRADA agreement, which extended across multiple different um, disease indications. So uh, we're also very grateful to Genentech for providing the uh, bevacizumab to study participants who could get access to the drug without, um, I mean, off of um, off of a, a, a disease indication because that didn't come until 213 was actually completed, which was part of the reason why that that drug became available. So this was a uh, just to be clear, this is an NCI-sponsored trial. So um, the the choice for the um, adjuvant therapy was left to the investigators once the re- chemotherapy objective was addressed, and uh, and so actually it's it's quite good actually that we were able to uh, have a, a study that's very contemporary because it's including current standards of care. So then that that brings us to another point that obviously comes up, and and we've seen it from the the LAC trial when uh, surgeons don't like the results that they see in a study. (laughs) Obviously, one of the first claims is, well, you you didn't pick me as the surgeon, so (laughs) therefore, you know, you didn't get the appropriate results um, because, you know, obviously I'm such a a skilled surgeon. Um, So obviously that's editorializing uh, a a bit uh, from the the feedback on the the LACTRA, but I think uh, certainly this is coming up again in this uh, in this trial and this was actually a, a recurring theme in some of the questions that we received from uh, social media the question of did you pick the right surgeons how did you select the surgeons uh, how were the, the the sites selected as it pertained to surgery which uh, you know certainly some would claim that a 67 percent complete gross resection uh, is too low uh, and and certainly some would argue that that's that's pretty much actually the standard uh, rates that one would see uh, even from high volume institutions. So uh, again, to, 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 to your 
your opinion regarding uh, the surgery quality. Yeah, so you're <clears throat> right. This does come up a lot. It kind of reminds me of that uh, that uh, 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 Geico commercial where they say, oh, uh, you know, do you know Dr. So-and-so? Oh, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> yeah, but when you talk about surgeons, they all believe they're in the tail, right? They all believe that they're the best particular person. So, But when you do a study that involves a population of people <clears throat> who everybody believes that they're the best, you can't have a bell-shaped curve. <laughs> Nobody says, oh, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm just okay. So um, <clears throat> so I think it's, a, yeah, there's a little bit of fallacy in that. I think that people feel that they, um, who their whole life is dedicated to the to the role of surgery in, in any solid tumor, um, do feel that they have a, a special skill set. We specifically I, uh, address this population of patients based on the mountains of, re, rep, of retrospective studies that showed that patients who went to the OR and got an optimal cytoresection, which was uh, cytoreduction, which was defined as no gross residual, did the best. And so we designed the trial to allow the physician to use in their own hands the ability to identify patients that they could get to a complete gross resection. So this wasn't just a, just a global criteria. I left it up to Dr. Pedro Ramirez to say, in my hands, I can get that patient to a complete gross resection. So we left it up to the investigators to address that point in their own practice. So what you saw in 213 is a committed group of gynecologic oncologists who are participating in the, in, in the network of the, of the GOG, now called NRG GOG, who under their own skill set uh, were, were taking patients to the OR with the intent that they could remove all of their disease. Now, it was randomized so that they picked their candidates and then they were randomized to no surgery versus surgery. So this is taking the, patient, the physicians who think they can operate well and then allowing them to, to, to uh, randomize their patients in either direction. So, so I do think it's very relevant. I think that there have been other studies like the DES type 3, which has come up with criteria. That criteria was identifying a similar goal. Uh, what, how can we optimize the proportion of patients who, who go to surgery will get a complete gross resection? And interesting, interestingly, the DES type 2 trial set that bar at, at 66%. So using the physicians to pick their own patients without any gross criteria, um, they still got into the same uh, space that would have been considered acceptable from the desktop three trial. And Rob, one of the uh, one of the other questions that has come up is that some might argue that this study is not really representative of uh, North America or Europe, uh, as nearly half the patients were from South Korea. Uh, what are you, what are your comments regarding that? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, it's always important to have a diverse patient population. And I think we've learned that, um, in, at least in the chemotherapy side of things, that uh, certain patient populations have different responses to treatment. Um, we uh, This was obviously a, a, a half the patients, more than half the patients came from a broad spectrum of the U.S. population. And there was a, um, a large, uh, and, and, and we're very grateful to the South Koreans to who participated under the uh, Korean GOG. Uh, um, uh, to add their um, their patients to the study, we um, I knew this was going to come up as a concern, so I did it. We actually separated out um, that population. And interestingly, the the uh, rates of of complete gross resection and the PFS and overall survival hazard ratios are identical. So it was basically the same in both those patient populations. 
So um, very, very comforting to see that uh, across the world in multiple different patient populations that we saw the same outcomes. And Rob, the, um, the other question was that I believe there was no difference in overall quality of life between the, the groups. Uh, what, what are your thoughts regarding that? So the actual, the quality of life actually was different between the surgery group and the non-surgery group at just at the first time point after surgery, as we might have expected. But then once they got over the effects of surgery, we essentially were looking at two patient cohorts that had chemotherapy. So we basically saw a very similar outcome at all the time points post this, post, after the recovery from surgery. Um, as a follow-up to, to the, um, you know, the issue again of the oncologic outcomes, mm -hmm. um, there was no statistically significant difference in overall survival, but one cannot help but noticing that the, the median overall survival for no surgery was over one year longer. Why do you think that that might have been the case? Yeah, that's a, I think that um, probably two things to mention with that, regard to that. <clears throat> the first was that I think that what you're seeing under this particular um, trial is that the time frame of, of, the, of, of success, of, um, of anticipated overall survival has migrated dramatically. So we anticipated that um, patients would only, be, uh, would only have an overall survival of just about two years based on GOG, GOG's own data. And what we've seen now with the incorporation of these drugs and um, the patient selection that was brought in the trial, that the overall survival was nearly uh, three times longer. So I know that I know that there's um, um, that there is this difference in the in the median um, overall survival uh, of a of, of a lot you know of eleven months. The I don't know how much stock to put in that. There's some obviously some variability, and and obviously at the median, there's we didn't see any significant difference between the two. Um, I think that, you know, one of the major concerns you would have with that is that we lost a lot of patients from surgery. I mean, that would be the kind of the natural conclusion. But, you know, in reality, we didn't, we only had, I think, one post-operative death. And, um, uh, but, you know, the, the question comes up as to whether or not there may have been any long-term impact. I suspect that's not. It may be just a, a reflection of the um, kind of the natural patient uh, uh, cohort dynamics of the, of the patient population over a long period of time. Um, but, um, yeah, it's definitely, you know, definitely an interesting observation. So, Rob, one of the other questions that came up, and I, I suspect I know the answer to this, but one of the other questions that came up through social media was, um, are there any plans on putting this data and the data of desktop three together yeah. and then mm -hmm. analyzing that mm -hmm. as, a, as one study? Right. Yes, absolutely. So actually, before either of these trials um, had had any reporting, we had already met to uh, figure out a way to combine the databases so that we could include essentially almost 900 and some patients, um, uh, 985, almost 1,000 patients into the trial. So we're very, um, we're very excited to be able to do that analysis. I think one of the things, if you think about the way that the trials are set up, that you know, the overall uh, complete gross resection rate that was reported at ASCO by, by Andres Dubois, uh, was 72.5%, um, and in the patient population that we uh, uh, operated on, it was 67%. So they're relatively close, actually not statistically different um, in, in, uh, in the complete gross resection rates. So my sense is that um, the difference, really the differences between these two trials really focuses on the adjuvant therapy. 
So in GOG 213, over 80% of the patients, as I mentioned, got bevacizumab in combination with chemotherapy, which, as you know, uh, increases PFS and uh, in 213's um, uh, uh, domain actually increased overall survival. In desktop uh, 3, the proportion of patients who received bevacizumab as an adjuvant therapy as their next line of therapy was about 20%. So there's about a fourfold difference in that in the use of that drug between the two cohorts, and that may have an impact on progression-free survival. It's hard to know. But I do think that if they have the same post-progression survivorship that we have, it's going to be very difficult for that to continue on as a measurable difference. But, you know, we'll see. And so ultimately, if we see one that's positive, one that's negative, we'll be able to, to combine the two and actually do a deep dive into the uh, patient characteristics that where we might be able to find a subgroup where it works. And when when do we anticipate desktop three to <laughs> be published? So yeah, I can't. I don't. I don't. Um, I know that they're still waiting for events. So it's interesting, right? So um, you know, we released ours uh, early, not having met all of the events, even as of April. So if we were waiting for a hundred percent events, we'd still be waiting too. So um, I think they're seeing basically the same effect that we are. Um, I what I've been told is that they they hope to have results to present at ASCO in twenty twenty. Okay. So one of the other questions that came up again refers back to the to the issue of the impact that bevacizumab had on the results of this trial. Mm -hmm. And um, the question specifically was on the impact of bevacizumab on the effect of surgery. Um, remembering, uh, this is quoting, the potential interference of bevacizumab with tumor burden with dose-dense schedule and routine uh, and route of administration. So I, you know, I think that the, um, you know, the, it, for us, the, uh, at least in GOG 213, the proportion of patients who had surgery and did not get bevacizumab is a very low number. So um, the confidence intervals are quite large. I think it was a little interesting to see how that survival curve was so inferior uh, compared to the, uh, to the patients who got bevacizumab. I don't know what to make of it. I hate to put too much emphasis on the subgroup analysis. It certainly was not powered to address that question nor stratified uh, to, to, to do a formal hypothesis testing. What I would say is that, you know, if you look at the, in, at the trial in a whole, since over 80% of the patients got Bev in both arms, you know, you're really looking at a, 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 not so much a chemotherapy question, but really a surgical question in two patient cohorts. Um, another question that uh, came up was, uh, and I think you spoke a little bit about this, but I think it's, it's important to, to address this because I think that certainly a lot of people may get tend to get caught up in, in the issue of the methodology and the statistics. And mm -hmm. the question says, uh, what are your thoughts on the impact of amending the study with creative statistics and methodology? That's uh, uh, quoting the, the question. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what they mean by amending the statistics. Um, we didn't, we never changed the statistics um, per se. It was always, it was easy because it was left to be overall survival. And I, I think if they're concerned about releasing the data early, I think I addressed the question about the DSMB and, you know, releasing the information to the investigators. Um, we amended the trial after the results of GOG-213's chemo objective to allow for physicians to choose bevacizumab uh, with either of its two parent um, chemotherapy regimens for which we had phase three data. So they were allowed to use gemcitabine and carboplatinum plus or minus Bev, and they were allowed to use, which was the OCEANS trial, 
and they were allowed to use Paxacaro Platinum plus or minus Bev, which was GOG 213. So both of the options that were left up to physicians were considered standard of care options. Uh, and that was amended because it would be very difficult to put a patient on an already known inferior doublet when they were both already in the public domain and approved. So uh, your, your thoughts on uh, on this question, and again, I mean, actually today we're, we, we have uh, the, the podcast from uh, Ignaz Vergot uh, that was uh, released on the impact of HIPEC in ovarian cancer. So as it relates to that, um, there was a question that was submitted with regards to uh, what would have been the impact of HIPEC on this trial? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> we're completely speculating here, but let's say HIPEC is effective. So then, you know, I think if you were randomizing between surgery and no surgery and then randomizing HIPEC versus no HIPEC, I think you'd, you would, you know, that might would be the, really the only way to address that question. But if everybody's getting HIPEC, um, whether you do it with a side reduction or not, I mean, th you're essentially, um, you know, doing a, a trial that's looking at the impact of, of, of the surgical resection. So if people believe strongly that um, HIPEC has to be given, you know, in the situation with complete side reduction, then I, sent, then I would say then go ahead and study that um, question. But you have to do it appropriately powered and to adjust for all the variables for which these patients are going to get. And again, if you're using overall survival and patients are living three years past their HIPEC um, surgery exposure, you have to be pretty confident that all of the subsequent therapies including patients that get surgery and get PARP inhibitors and bevacizumab multiple times and new drugs that come along the way are somehow going to preserve that benefit. Yeah, and I think it's also, it, it has to be highlighted, the fact that, you know, certainly, although obviously we, we come up with many questions after mm -hmm. uh, these large randomized trials, after the results are published and then claiming that the, the study is not ideal because it didn't answer that particular <laughs> question, you know, obviously yeah. it's, it's an unfair charge to the, uh, to the study and to the study design because that, that, that was not the question initially. So right. therefore, uh, that it's an open entry for another trial. Um, so, um, you speak in the manuscript about three key elements that we should keep in mind when interpreting the results of the, uh, of the trial. Um, and I was wondering if you can uh, give us some details as to or expand on those uh, three key elements that, uh, that you referred to in, the, uh, in your discussion. Well, I think um, probably the kind of the key here, uh, we did talk a little bit about the bevacizumab role um, and, and how that might impact um, subsequent therapy. And we talked a little bit about the, the prolonged um, or underappreciation of how long patients live. And that's really a reflection of the power uh, that you would have to design a trial to account for that post-progression survivorship. And it would really be you know substantial. I think if we were looking at the difference in the PFS uh, that we saw on, on either desktop three or in, in uh, GOG 213, we would have needed somewhere on the order of about 5,000 patients to address, you know, that, that particular question for overall survival because patients are living so long after their, after their uh, first progression. So I think that um, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I think that the you know I addressed a little bit about the about the subgroups that we don't know about, and I think the probably the most critical one to uh, think about in this setting is what is the impact of therapy 
on patients who are BRCA positive, or to extend that even further as HRD positive. Now, most all these patients got platinum-based chemotherapy, and they also received, you know, a large proportion of them also received bevacizumab. But it does raise the question as to whether or not, you know, surgery has um, a role in the super-sensitive, uh, chemosensitive patients, which we might think about as a BRCA patient population. So um, I, 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 I just want to bring back, you know, what exactly we showed in this trial. We took a, um, a hypothesis that was brought up from mountains of retrospective studies uh, to address overall survival with the intent um, of, of uh, assessing the best uh, therapies that we have um, at that time. And when you, when you set up a trial with this uh, idea, um, you know, you have there, you, there, it's expected that along the way more information will be gained that will help to um, de develop new hypotheses, as we talked about before. So I think that um, that that looking at um, BRCA status is is going to be an important aspect into understanding this, and we'll we are certainly uh, looking at that um, as part of a kind of the next steps to to uh, to look at. Um, Right now, based on the data that we have and what we could analyze, we could not find a subgroup of patients in whom we could raise the hypothesis that surgery might improve their outcomes as, as opposed to chemotherapy alone. So, um, but we still need to dig because it may be that there are subgroups. And this is one of the benefits of being able to combine desktop 3 and, and 213 is that we um, will have the opportunity to have a larger data set so we can actually interrogate some of these questions in a little more details. And Rob, one, um, one additional question that I had, and, and I think that this is particularly important for the um, trainees, fellows that, you know, for, you know it, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how often when there are results from prospective randomized trials, um, level one evidence, and, and, and surgeons don't seem to accept those, those results, then that is trumped in their minds by small retrospective case series published in <laughs> in uh, in you know less than desirable <laughs> uh, uh, settings, um, and and you know certainly can you speak to you know certainly why why there is a value in 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 this setting to performing a prospective randomized trial and 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 certainly obviously interpreting that. In, in, in the context in, in which it's published. Right. So it, as you know well, in, in when you have a, uh, uh, an intervention that is so dependent on patient, on patient selection by physicians, there's going to be an inherent bias. Um, the whole point of doing a randomized trial is that you take that bias as far out as you can. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to, let's say, take your patient who's got a four-year disease-free interval and put them and, and, and decide that, well, I'm not going to put you on the trial because I know that it works, okay? So, so what they're going to do is you're going to put your patient, patient, your patient population that you really don't know. It's probably worth answering the question, so you're going to kind of put those patients on. And that's reflected in our, um, you know, our median uh, treatment-free interval, which was about, you know, a little under two years. So people kind of chose that as their kind of, questionable area where they wouldn't where they really don't know and so that's why they wanted to go forward but when you look at your own retrospective data and then you say well listen and over that same time period these are the patients we gave chemo to well, you've already made a decision to not to either to operate or to not operate <laughs> so you've already been influenced by something that you hold dear that you think is going to impact patients and 
no surprise. When you look retrospectively, almost every trial that has done this kind of effort has shown a benefit to surgery, which is why we raise the hypothesis. So retrospective studies raise hypotheses to be answered in a prospective phase three fashion. And they're difficult to do, as you mentioned, but we did it. And I can't help but you know, thank all of the investigators all over the world who helped to make this happen. They, they had to put their biases aside and say, this is an important enough question to ask and answer, and we did it. So you know, congratulations to them. Well, congratulations to you. One final question. Is this practice changing? Should we stop doing secondary cytoreductive surgery on all patients with platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer? That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> put, put me on the spot. So I, you know, I think that um, under the terms of this study, I think if, if you um, look at the eligibility criteria that we use for this trial, that I, I think that you'd have to question your decision to operate. Um, I never say never, uh, and I meant to make this point earlier, we wrote this trial as a superiority trial. So what we did is that we could not reject the null hypothesis, which was that surgery does not benefit patients as, uh, from the standpoint of overall survival. That's different than saying that it's equivalent or inferior. Those trials are, would be much bigger. So I don't want to over-interpret a negative superiority trial. But I do think that the way that the curves look and the, and the way that they, uh, where the hazard ratios lie and the lower limit of the 95% confidence interval being at 0.97, that you have to really question whether or not if a patient would have otherwise gone on this trial, why you would operate on her. And so I do think it's practice changing. As you know, we have made a decision to reevaluate all those surgical cases in a multidisciplinary setting. Um, I think if new data emerge that there are subgroups that we need to, uh, to evaluate, then I think we'll ask that question and try to prospectively address it as well. Rob, congratulations. This is a, a fantastic achievement. Um, congratulations for all this hard work, dedication, and uh, persistence. Thank you. Thanks for having me.